the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons, Bible teacher and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. I want to talk about the heart of Christ. I want you to get to know Him. I want you to know Him historically, of course, but I also want you to know him intimately and to really know what was going on in his life. So let's begin here at John chapter 12, and I'm going to read to you at verse 12 and 13, because I want you to see that even though it's talked about this triumphal entry of Christ, you also know that he came with a broken heart, and I'll explain that. So let's look at verse 12, and here's what you read. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast when they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Well, let's just stop there for a moment. For some of you, you're just reading something you've heard. You've kind of seen some of the shows about Jesus and all of that. But I don't know if you understand some of the background of the significance of all of this. I'd like you to write down the following references. They are not on the screen and they will not be in your notes. But I want you to have these references because what you're going to do, you're going to write them down and then you're going to read these because these are just references that specifically deal with his entry into Jerusalem here in the final week. And when you read it, you're going to get surround sound and technicolor because when you read all of them, it's going to add more to this wonderful event that took place. So let me give them to you now. You want to read Matthew chapter 21? That's Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. So read it very carefully. In fact, you might want to, if you have a computer program, you might want to put all of these references on the screen and compare all of them together. The next is going to be Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. So it's Matthew chapter 21, 1 through 11. Then it's Mark 11, 1 through 10. Then you go to Luke. I mean, we will look at Luke in a moment here, but you're going to look at Luke chapter 19. And there's a lot of verses in this part. Verses 28 through 44. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through verse 44. Now, let's talk about this a little bit. You notice how it says, on the next day there was a large crowd that came to the feast when they heard him as Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. If you were to read all of these gospel stories, actually there were two great large crowds. We would call them rivers of people. The first river of people may not be quite as large. They're coming from a little town called Bethany. It was in Bethany where the Lord healed Lazarus. It was kind of the last act before he goes into Jerusalem for his final week. And the people were so enamored by what he did in healing Lazarus that they started talking and many people came. And the Jewish leaders in Bethany that saw him do all of this stuff, they started a kibitz with one another thinking, oh my goodness, we've got a real problem on our hand here. Look what Jesus is doing. Now behind the scenes was... And if Jesus keeps doing this, maybe there'll be a great insurrection here and the Romans will come and squash all of us and so we really got a problem here. And Jesus is even blaspheming because he's claiming to be God through all of this stuff. So they were really scratching their heads. We got to do something about this. So now that river of people 
He's watching Jesus as he's now leaving Bethany and he's heading towards Jerusalem. Now read some of the other Gospels because there's neat things that are happening, stuff that you've already read about before, but it's not here in the Gospel of John. It doesn't contradict the story. It just adds more events into it. So now he's heading in. But there was word ahead of time that Jesus took a dead man who was dead, 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 dead. He wasn't dead one day. He wasn't dead two days. He wasn't dead three days. He was dead four days. He was so dead that they even said he what? Stunk, all right? That was how dead he was. So when he raised him from the dead and Lazarus came forth out of that tomb, you know that the word would spread like wildfire and they wanted to meet him. So there are now a river of people coming from Jerusalem. Now there's also something else about to happen. Remember those two rivers of people? Why would there still be so many people and so much going on in Jerusalem? Well, besides the fact that Jesus was doing all of this stuff and that he did a lot of stuff already in that part of the country and they're really wanting to see, is this the king that's going to set up everything and start his kingdom here? That Messiah we read about in the Old Testament, especially the Jewish people that knew that in their oral tradition. Some of them were there because of Passover. In fact, as I did this study, I think I could almost substantiate that there were over 500 to 1 million people that swelled Jerusalem for Passover alone. And you could imagine what the topic of the conversation was. A miracle worker is showing up and he says he's the Messiah. This must mean when the great kingdom is going to be established and now we really are going to rule everything that they heard about from the prophets. So there was a lot of excitement going on. And I'm thinking about Jesus. Here's Jesus command center of everything he knew what was going on he was God he knew the end before the beginning you know that kind of thing here he was in a quiet little meal there with a few of his friends eating enjoying it they had a special meal for him with Mary Martha Lazarus is healed and what goes on now he now faces this crowd of 500 to a million people have you ever had to speak publicly before does that get you nervous when you have to speak publicly you know, some of you, you kind of overcome some of that fear and so you can speak publicly in front of one person. A little humor there. Some of you, a little bit more, a little bit more. But if you thought that there were millions of people watching you, do you think it might cause you to be nervous over something like that? I know it, it has me and I haven't spoken to me. I've been on television, been on Larry King and those kind of things before uh, representing Christ and, and people that we were ministering to. But all you see is a few cameramen, a few producers, and you see the interviewer in front of you. But then they tell you that, you know, there are 7 million people watching you. I'm sure glad it's just a little box I'm speaking into. It'd make me nervous. Well, Jesus wasn't nervous because he was a man. He was a God-man, and he was on a mission. And his mission was to accomplish the payment for our sin in the future and the resurrection. But it wasn't just that. Now, that's key. That's the, that's the epicenter of all this truth. Because you can't get the rest of it until you go to the door of Christ and what he did. But it's not only that. All this other stuff wasn't just accidental happenings in the world. Everything was orchestrated by God, allowing man to do his free will and the Lord taking authority even over man's free will as all this was happening. Well, so let's go back. You know how it talked about that they were dropping all the palm fronds down and all this kind of stuff? That was not said in the Old Testament. The closest to putting down palm fronds in the Old Testament was the Feast of Tabernacles. And this isn't the Feast of Tabernacles. This is going to be the Passover feast in a few days. So why did they do all of this stuff? Well, actually, that bit of tradition became real popular with the Jews between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Here's a big word. I can, I can almost say it. The intertestamental period. 
which means that time of about 400 years between the closing of the canon of the Old Testament and the beginning of the canon of the New Testament. The closing of the inspired word of the Old Testament and the beginning of the inspired word of the New Testament. And some Bibles, usually the Roman Catholics, they would have what is known as the Maccabees or the Maccabean times. Now, while that is not inspired, and that's another story, another time for me to prove that to you, it does have valuable history. And during that particular time is when a king would come, they would pay homage by doing it. Now, in this passage, it said they threw down palms. We knew they weren't the kind of palms that our children threw down palm fronds. They were mostly date palms. And if you go to Israel now, you can see a lot of those beautiful date palms. It's like going to the desert of Southern California. Those kinds of palms they were dropping down. But that's not all. They also took part of their coats and cloaks off and they would put that in front. Why would they do that? Well, part of it is to pay homage to the king. The other part of it is we don't want our king's feet to get dirty. And there would be this special entourage that would come in. And so Jesus is, is going through this. Now, this is where it gets a little confusing for a lot of people. And some people, they just kind of, they don't want to pay the price to study the word. They don't want to pay the price to really learn it. They don't want to pay the price to remember it. So when they see it's something that seems to be contradictory, here's what they do. And I don't want us to do that. You'll notice that many times they were trying to promote Jesus. And Jesus said, time out. Nope, my time's not yet. It's not yet. But this time, you'll notice he kind of opens the door a little bit. And he lets the people pay homage at this time. Now, most of us, we think, what a glorious time. Can you just picture Jesus? They're paying homage. He knows he's the king. He knows he's going to the cross. And how much he must be smiling because finally, they're recognizing him, who he really is, king of kings and lord of lords kind of a thing. But not so. And this is where I need you to hold your place here because I want you to go to Luke. Now, Luke is easy to find. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So Matthew, Mark, Luke. I want you to go to Luke chapter 19 because I want you to see as he's going in with all this stuff going on, all this, uh, oh, I don't know, pomp and circumstance, some people might call it. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 19 because I want you to see what's going on here. Pick it up, if you will, at verse 38. Well, pick it up at verse 37. 1937 says, as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. Now, it wasn't just about the miracles. It was about the miracles substantiating he must be someone special, the king that's supposed to come in doing all these great things. And so they were shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace on earth or peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, you rebuke your disciples. Remember, as he's coming in, he still had these naysayers. You rebuke them. You tell them to be quiet. And Jesus said, I tell you, if these become silent, these people, the stones will cry out. And when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city. And here's what you want to mark. He wept over it. So instead of it being a triumphal entry, you might put in the margin of your notes, it was really a tearful entry. Because he wept over it. And the Greek actually means it wasn't like he went sniffles. It was like he sobbed. Now, obviously he sobbed for the people of Jerusalem. But he also knew that just in a short time, not only these people are so blinded and lost and and they're going to go from one thing of praising him to the next minute crucifying him, he also knew that Titus would be coming in in 70 A.D. 
and he would be bringing down the walls of Jerusalem and they would burn the city. And you know there was a lot of wealth there in the temple especially. And when they did all of that, all that wealth that was in the temple melted because of the gold and it all kind of got in the cracks. And so now they took all the rocks to separate them to get any little piece of gold out of there they could. So he's weeping over the city. He's weeping over the people. So it wasn't so much of a triumphal entry. It was one of some sadness that was going on. You had kind of a, what we might call a, a, a broken heart. And I guess my question when I read this for me, and I don't know, but it might be for you, is does my heart really break over the lost condition of people? And, and we could divide up the people in our world. The first people would be, how does your heart feel towards your own family? Is there anyone in your family who doesn't know Christ as Savior yet? Who doesn't really know the Lord? Who's confused about spiritual matters, particularly Jesus Christ and salvation by faith alone? Is there a bit of a, a brokenness? When you look at beyond your family, maybe we could talk about the next maybe significant people would be your, your neighbors. If we had a tsunami... It's not going to be the people that work, you work with that matters. It's going to be the people who are next to you to find out who has power and who doesn't have power and what relationship. Do, do, you really weep? do you really weep because you are in a neighborhood and you're surrounded and God sovereignly placed you there. He sovereignly placed those people there and you're there now as a lighthouse for the gospel for them in some measure. And my heart doesn't break so much, and maybe it's me here, that they're lost. My heart breaks for the fact that they're lost and, and sometimes I don't have the courage to engage a conversation. Uh, sometimes my heart breaks because I have invited them to a function here and they've heard the gospel and they've seen the music and they've experienced your love for them. And yet for them, uh, no, I got my own thing. And the reason my heart breaks is, yeah, I know when they die they're not going to go to heaven and it's a horrible place of hell, but... It's not just fire insurance. My heart breaks for them because they don't know how to have an intimate relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And there is no ruler that has ever existed. There is no founder of any religion or cult or ism or spasm that, with whom they could ever be intimate with. Because all of that is man-made or they're just men and they have no power within them. It's only Jesus Christ. And we can have that forgiveness relationship and intimacy with it. Do we break and so Jesus is my model. Now, I'm not going to ever come to a place, hopefully, where people are going to bow down and worship me. And when they do, I hope I'm a Teflon Christian. So when they say something nice to me, it bounces off of me and I can give it to the Lord. But I do want my heart to really break for those who don't know the Lord as Savior. And we can't break our own hearts. It's going to come from our mind first and the reality of all this spiritual stuff that is going to happen. And that's what happened to Christ. Well, it goes a little bit further than that. If you will, go to verse 14 now. So he not only had what we call a, a broken heart, he also had what we call a humble and obedient heart. Look in verse 14. It says, Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, coming seated on a donkey colt. Now, let's just stop for a minute on that. This is huge, by the way. Now, some people might say, well, sure, he came on the donkey because he's special. And, and when you're up on a donkey now, you're a little higher than everybody. And everybody else got to walk. But you get a chance to have this beast of burden carry you. So that's really, really special. I know if we have a limited knowledge and we can perceive it and it seems so logical. But in reality, this is so huge of what you're reading here when it talked about this donkey. 
So first of all, let me speak to some of you that are on the outside of the faith and you question the veracity of Scripture, because this gets important. It does talk, and give me a few moments to build this, this case so you can understand. It does talk about in the Old Testament that there is Messiah, not a Messiah. There's only one Messiah. That there is Messiah, the Savior, the King, the Lord. But as it describes this Messiah, the Old Testament describes this Messiah as being king like we're talking about, as being a great miracle worker, as being the king of all the world, as being one that has control, all of that. But it also says in the Old Testament, it describes Messiah, not a different Messiah, same Messiah, as one who would be the suffering Messiah. So in Psalm 22 and other places, it talks about his him being so brutalized. And Zechariah talks about them nailing him to a cross. Jeremiah, Isaiah, describe the suffering Messiah. Now the big question is, is what comes first? King first, then suffering? Or suffering first, then king? Two separate people? It all happens at once? And that's where there's a lot of question. Now here's my phrase. Listen carefully. The Jews are what we're going to say are in the dark about who Jesus is. I'm going to come over here. His disciples were in the fog. What's the difference between being in the dark in being in the fog. Well, in the dark, you can't see anything. I mean, it's dark, 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 dark. It's like a blind person in a black room looking for a black cat that's not even there. They can't see nothing, so to speak. The disciples, they could kind of see this Jesus. Remember, they didn't throw rocks at Jesus. They might have not had all the following and all the passion for Jesus, but they were there, and they were watching, they were listening, and they were questioning some of this stuff. So a little bit of a fog, okay? But they weren't over here in the dark. So now you have the people here in the dark about Jesus. Now, there's some words. Old Testament and some in the New Testament, Jesus says, I'm coming for Israel, for the Jewish people. It's all about the Jewish people. Yeah, the Jewish people rejected the Lord, Jehovah, etc. Rejected the word, rejected the law, had one foot in the world, one foot in their Judaism and their, their, the worship of the Lord. And the Lord says, I could just basically, you know, spit them out of my mouth, all right? But he didn't totally abandon them. He just kind of began to put them on a shelf and said there will be a time that there will be a massive revival of Jewish people coming to the Lord. But he says that's happening. So Jesus now comes on the scene and he says to them, okay, I'm going to the Jewish people. I want them to hear about me. But he also said, if you recall, that there's going to be a shepherd himself and he will also draw sheep that are not of his fold referring to the Gentile people. So a little bit of that, they can start seeing that's happening out there. So all this is going on at this time. Again, Old Testament said, this Messiah would come into Jerusalem and he would be riding a colt or a little donkey, not a horse, but, but a donkey. That's Zechariah chapter 9, and you could read it there if you want. And I wanted you to know that because that was written literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus did exactly this. Now, why that was written, Jeremiah says, so that you would be able to recognize that this is prophecy. You'd recognize that this is truth ahead of time. So I'm telling you ahead of time so you'll know it's from me. So now when Jesus comes in, he's fulfilling prophecy that he would come in on a donkey rather than a horse. So again, that's fulfilling prophecy, giving you, again, one out of many prophecies that the word of God can be trusted. Now, notice how he said many prophecies. Do you know how many prophecies about Christ there were in the Old Testament before Christ ever came? Not 10, not 20, not 30, not 100, not 200, not 300. 333 prophecies. Now, if you quote that and you say, Jesus, there's 333 prophecies of Christ and Christ fulfilled every one of them, you wouldn't be telling the truth. You say, wait a minute, I, didn't he do all that? No, no. There's 333 prophecies on the Messiah, but he's only fulfilled the ones of him coming the first time. 
there are yet to be fulfilled prophecies of the 333 of when he comes the second time. Now, if you give me about two minutes, I'm going to bring up the second time in a moment. So you read about he came in a cult, came because it said so. So he looked at it. This is what he did. Now, the other important truth to remember is that when kings would go places, they wouldn't go on a donkey because a donkey is a beast of burden. It's what poor people might have. It would not be a sign of royalty and strength. Now, those of you that are knowledge of the Scripture, let me just give you this bit. In the Old Testament, before the Jews ever got into the Promised Land, the Lord, through Moses, told the Jews, you're going to want a king. And when you want a king, do not multiply to yourself horses. Other things too, but particularly horses. Wives was the other thing, but horses. Why? He said, because if you have horses... Besides the pride, I've got the horse and I'm the king. Horses were also something you would trust for battle. And he says, no, I want your trust to be in me. And so now he comes over here and he comes in a little donkey. However, that's the suffering Messiah. Same Messiah, when is he the exalted, glorious Messiah? Huh. He comes back again. He doesn't come back to Jerusalem within seven days. He comes back to Jerusalem a couple thousand years. In fact, when he comes back, he's going to be riding, not a donkey, but he's going to be riding a what? A horse. And when he rides a horse, it's not going to be any old horse. Of course, of course, of course, a horse. It's going to be a white horse. Now, when does he come back? Now, stay with me. Those of you that are new, I'm going to kind of walk you through a little timeline here. All right, pretend up here is a, is a timeline. This is when the earth and the world is created. You have all the Jewish people, Old Testament. You have Jesus born here, laid in a manger. He then lives 33 years. Then we basically say when the Holy Spirit comes and starts into the church, we have what is known as the church age. How long does the church age last? We really don't know, but we're going to say maybe 2,000 years, pretty close to where we are now. But then there's going to be a time that the Lord is going to say it's time for all of you Christians to go to heaven. So he's going to blast us with a trumpet and the voice of God and wake up as Christians and uh, they're going to be resurrected off the earth. We'll just say raptured off the earth. Now there's going to be horrific tribulation. Now I will not doubt and deny that there was terrible, terrible, terrible suffering in the Old Testament for the Jews when they were in rebellion. Terrible sufferings of Christians. Um, We believe that there are more Christians that have died since the turn of the century till today than all the Christians combined from the turn of the century all the way back to the New Testament church. Now, at the end of this, Jesus says, all right, now I'm going to come back. And I'm going to come back on this white horse. And he comes back. He doesn't come back as a suffering Messiah. He comes back as the glorious King Messiah. Because when he does this, there's a huge battle there. Oh, by the way, you're asking, where is that in Scripture? Read Revelation 19. So he comes back, and now he sets up what is known as the millennium. The millennium is a designated amount of time. Tribulation, seven years. Church age, I don't know. We don't know the amount of years. We're over here, 1,000 years. 1,000 years, Jesus now comes, not as suffering Messiah, but as king, and he sets up his rule on the earth in Jerusalem as king. That's when he sets, all right, at this particular time, Great things are going to happen. The animals love each other. Grace is going to be on the earth. There's going to be a lot of, there'll be light, be glorious time. And that's when he sets up his king. And that's why there's so much confusion today with the Jewish people trying to figure out, is it the suffering Messiah? Is it the king? What's really going on? Has he come? Will he come? What's happening here? So again, back to this passage. 
He was humble when he came. He came now on a little colt, a little donkey. What a great testimony. But that's not all. Look at verse 16. He says, These things the disciples did not understand at the first. In other words, they're watching all of this stuff. They weren't connecting the dots between this is the Jesus, this is the Messiah, this is Old Testament, this is Zechariah. What's going on right here? What's happening right here? There's so much confusion. Who is this? Why is this happening? They didn't know at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, Old Testament, and that he had been, and that they had done these things to him. He said, ah, now I see what has happened with the Jewish leaders, etc. Now, if you have your Bibles open, I want you to look at this. If not, just listen. It says, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him. Now look up here. Do you mind if I just get a little technical because this is important because that's a little phrase right there. It said, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered. All right, the question is, is when was he glorified? He wasn't glorified on the cross. He was glorified when he resurrected from the cross. When he came back to life again, he is now glorified. Now, that doesn't mean everybody worshipped him, but all of a sudden, he is who he claimed to be. Now, if you recall, after he resurrected, he did some more teaching, and then he ascended up to heaven. When he left to be ascended up to heaven, a short time after that, who came down in the person of the Holy Spirit? Himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, stay with me, stay with me. When the Holy Spirit came, the Holy Spirit had, has multiple ministries. I don't have time to teach you all of them. I'll just give you one. One of those ministries is the ministry to remind us, to teach and remind, kind of wrapped up into one. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando, Florida. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us Make It Clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com. <laughs> 